weeks ago, we did a uh, study on Hanukkah, and um, the the conversation that centered around the Jews of the first century and their and their belief in uh, the coming Messiah, their forward looking to the coming Messiah, was uh, written up by a number of rabbis in that time. They were actively searching for the coming king. And in fact, the, the Maccabean Revolt a few hundred years before that, 150 years before that, was centered on this idea of cleansing the temple. And so it's, a, it's interesting that the, the entire celebration of Hanukkah is, is a, about the topic of cleansing the temple. And there are a few things that are unique about it that I think in a cursory reading of John, a, a straightforward, easy, just ignore the Old Testament reading of John that, that most people would like to do, and there's nothing wrong with that in terms of uh, in terms of grasping just a surface level reading. Well, what ends up happening sometimes is we is we miss the deeper meaning that John's pointing to that he's alluding to, um, and we we search after something that's on the surface instead of the deep things of God that, that he's got for us. So, with that as a as kind of a, a background uh, for what's going on here. We have been, we've been walking through the book of John and, and John's theological system. The life books end up being something that is available to everybody. I'm reading out of New King James. I'll be reading some out of ESV. You know, like, I like to switch around translations and read it in as, as many different translations as possible. But we've walked through how in the original Greek, John started off with his discussion of Jesus as the Logos, the meaning of life, the purpose of the reason behind why God did what he did. And then he, he brought that forward to the phos, the light. Jesus was the light for all men. And then we, we walked forward a little bit more and saw him as the Lamb of God, and then as a rabbi. And last week we talked about, in the, in the wedding at Cana, whether or not Jesus was alluding to himself as the bridegroom as well. This week, when we look at the cleansing of the temple... We're going to look at Christ as the temple. Christ as Emmanuel, which means God with us. It's interesting that the cleansing of the temple used to be a traditional Advent reading. It used to be the, the week one Advent reading of the ancient church. And it, the, the prospect of that was the temple of God is us, and, and therefore we should cleanse the temple as well in preparation for the coming of the king. And that, that Advent reading was derived from the idea that there was an expectation of the Messiah. And the expectation of the Messiah was, was all about, it was the buzz of the first century. And that tradition's largely been lost because it doesn't jive with the popular focus on the cute baby Jesus. Uh, and the, the dominant view of Scripture, however, is the bold, powerful Son of God, not the innocent little baby in the, in the manger. That's an important aspect of God becoming human, but I think you can get that from just about everybody. People love the baby Jesus. They're not so pleased with the Jesus that makes a whip of cords. So I'm going to give you some ideas of where I'm headed today. Uh, we've got a lot of scripture to cover. I'll try and cover as much as I can, but uh, there's just there's a, there's not a, as much opportunity to dwell on the on the places where that could take us. So let's let's try and keep our our. Uh, our conversation is focused on this, and I'm going to ask that we hold our Q&A for the most part until dinner this evening, and, and we'll, we'll just try and get through as much of this as we can. Please feel free to interrupt if you have any questions. I don't want to, I don't want to uh, 
miss that opportunity if it's right there on, on the tip of your tongue. So a couple of points. Number one, Jesus is, in the reading of this, uh, where we were just in, uh, where John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. Jesus is acting out, he's enacting a prophetic sign of himself as the Messiah. He is bringing the attention of the people in the area to himself as the Messiah. Number two, the temple is not primarily an earthly building. There's a point that Jesus is going to make here that, that says the temple is not this building. The temple is my body. And you see that in the, in the reading of the text. Well, if that's the case, then, then the prophecies about the temple may hold some treasure for us to study about the foreshadowing of the Son of God. Number three, if we're the temple, something interesting happens then with the transition of Jesus being the temple to the body of Christ being the temple in the church, and how does that occur? And, and by the way, if Jesus is the one who has to go clean out the temple, then it's not religion that makes you clean, it's the Son of God in you that makes you clean. And religion typically ends up creating a lot of the problem that Jesus was trying to clean out to begin with. It's an interesting observation, I think. So we'll get into that a little bit more as we go on. So, on the surface, I'm going to read it again just, um, just out of the New King James, just following along with me here. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and money changers doing business. And when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple, with the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. And then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? And Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, It has taken us 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. And therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered what he said, that he had said this to them, and, that they, that, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus has said. I'm going to try and focus in on, the, on that last verse. There's something really that stood out to me in my study of this. That they believed the scripture. Which scripture? What, what scripture? The first century Christians, while the New Testament was being written, called the Old Testament the scripture. So they must have been pointing to something in the Old Testament. And there's a prophecy that there's something specific. There's a quote that Jesus makes here. But it could be much, much, much more than that because the Jews asked him specifically, what sign do you show us since you do these things? And we're going to look at some of those signs. What, what were they expecting? They were looking for something. He did something that caused them to go, hey, wait a minute. We know what you're doing here. Show us your authority by which you're doing this. And it's not just the fact that he's cleaning out the temple. He's not just being mad. That's not what they're asking. They're asking something more. So anything stand out on the surface of this? Uh, to somebody. Any, any, any questions right up front as we get into it? I thought it was interesting that it took the time to make a whip. Instead of just going in there half cop, he prepared that on purpose. That never, that stood out for me today too, and I read 
this power right now. That's really interesting. He was really methodical about it. Mm -hmm. it. It reminds me, actually, now that you say that, um, that uh, early on uh, when we had kids uh, in our marriage, I, I listened to the teaching of somebody that said, never discipline your kids out of anger. Right? It was uh, be calm and collective and make sure that you have your stuff together so that you're not disciplining them out of the moment of that wrath, but you've got a chance to really settle in it. So that's, that's interesting. That's a good point. Anything else stand out right on the surface to people? Has anyone heard... The, the potential discrepancy called out between this and the synoptic gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's a second cleansing. A second there's cleansing. A, okay. This, there's a there, there's there are two different cleansings. There's one when he comes in um, early in his ministry, and there's one that comes in before Passover, right before his crucifixion Passover. Mm -hmm. And and that's been pointed to some people as a discrepancy in the chronology because there are two ways to look at it. There's either this that happens at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and also a second cleansing that happens at the end of Jesus' ministry. Or John gets the chronology wrong and some skeptics have pointed to that and said, well, hey, clearly these things were made up or, or altered after the fact because you know, these things don't, they don't line up. There, there are several different uh, ways to refute that uh, potential discrepancy problem. Um, most of them are very straightforward. However, I'm, I'm in the camp that agrees with what Wes just said, that there's two actual cleansings of, of the temple. And I've got a couple of reasons for that. Thank you. Uh, so we'll get right into that. Um, number one, John gives a different record of the events. He doesn't record the same specific details of it. In fact, one of the prophecies that Jesus quotes in, uh, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and uh, I'll read one of those for just a second. He said, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. The quotation that Jesus gives there of making it a house of prayer, and the prophecy which he points out, is something that's more unique towards the end of his ministry, and something that he's doing there in the end of his ministry. There's also a couple of specific things that John calls out here that aren't in the other accounts. So... John calls out here the fact that he's going to tear down the temple and they're going to rebuild it in three days. Interestingly, that becomes one of the accusations that's used against him in his trial. So the other gospel writers notice that event, but they don't record the cleansing of the temple in the beginning of his ministry. But the fact that it was 27 years into it marks it off from the beginning of Herod's building of the temple, and it puts this... Or, I'm sorry. Uh, so 46 years to build the temple up to this point marks the beginning of Herod's rebuilding of the temple and puts it at AD 27. So we can specifically mark the date of this occurrence because it was Passover in the year AD 27 when this happened. So that means that if Christ was crucified in AD 30 or later, that this would have been at the beginning of his ministry and the other events clearly happen at the end uh, in the last gospel, in the last week of his ministry before the crucifixion. So it, it's not very difficult to, to work that out if you do your homework. A couple of weeks ago, actually it was two weeks ago, uh, we talked about Jesus calling the disciples and the other potential discrepancies that are pointed out. Oh, well, Jesus called Peter here, but in the other account he called Peter here. And we said the very simple, straightforward reading of that just says that Jesus didn't say, follow me one time. 
he repeatedly called the disciples to follow him for different events and for specific occasions. He would go to them when they left and returned back to their work. He would then find them and say, follow me again. So it wasn't just a singular call. In the same way, there's no reason, there's no superficial reason based on the writings of Scripture to assume that there's only one cleansing of the temple in case that comes up. It's also interesting to note that the uh, function of the money changers was actually was actually important for the operation of the temple. They were doing something that they were supposed to do, selling doves and animals for people to sacrifice and exchanging money from different currencies that they brought as they came from different parts of the world to Jerusalem. So what was the problem? What was the problem that Jesus was trying to solve with these money changers? couple of points. One, the money changers were, were doing what they were doing inside the temple. They weren't doing it outside the temple. And in fact, there's a, there's a verse when Solomon is building the temple, it's in 2 Kings, the, the idea that the temple was supposed to be a, a quiet, uh, prayerful place was so important to the builders of Solomon's temple that even the sound of the, of the uh, hammers on the bricks was not heard inside the temple courts. They took their work from a distance and did their work out there and then brought it into the temple so that the temple remained a quiet, pensive place to come before God, even during its construction. And yet all this commotion was happening in the temple. That's not where it was supposed to be occurring. That's one issue. Second issue, probably much more important to that, is that the Old Testament specifically forbids usury. That is, charging interest to somebody for an action that is required by the law and, and you know, helping somebody. So these people that were coming in, it doesn't mean that the money changers didn't have a right to a business, that they had, that they had some need to be able to, to operate as a business or something like that. But the issue of them charging undue interest and, and actually taking people who were required to do the sacrifice and charging whatever they chose to charge for exchanging the money the currency transfer fees that were kind of hidden in there. there. There was something very greedy and wicked about that mentality. Hey, well, you've got to buy this pigeon so that you can make yourself right with God. I'll just skim a little off the top. That's, a, that's an unfortunate commentary on religion and, and how religion can easily become a place where corruption just attaches itself. Well, as, uh, as we're looking at Christ, the uh, cleanser of the temple, how do you guys reconcile that with the, with the idea of the quiet baby Jesus in the manger? There's a reason I'm asking that question. It's not just because it's Advent either. When I started reading this, I was, I was uh, thinking, should I, should I bring a little bit of a Christmas story in instead of doing the cleansing of the temple, which just happens to be where we're at in John. And um, I got encouraged by, by reading through some of, the, some of the commentators and some of the places where I'm going in, in Old Testament prophecy that this is very much in line with where we need to be for Advent. So in order to get us 
into that Christmas spirit, into that Advent, you know, uh, the nativity scene mindset and, and uh, reconcile that with what's in this part of Scripture. I'm, I'm going to lean on the prophetic words of Ricky Bobby and, uh, and his commentary on Southern Bible Belt Christianity when he says, and uh, I pray that the Lord forgive me for my irreverence in church. Dear Lord Baby Jesus, we'd also like to thank you for my wife's father, Chip, and we hope that you can use your Baby Jesus powers to heal him and his horrible life. It smells terrible, and the dogs are always bothering with it. Again, Ricky Bobby says, Dear Lord Jesus, lying there in your little ghost manger, looking at your baby Einstein developmental videos, learning about shapes and colors, and on and on and on. And then, later on, Ricky Bobby again calls on the, the Baby Jesus and says, Hang on, Baby Jesus. It's going to get bumpy. So, <laughs> to me, I, I don't know, I, I didn't grow up in, in Alabama, and so I, I'll try not to pick on Talladega too much, although it is located in our, in our home state now. <laughs> Pardon? It's very, easy. it's very easy to pick on Talladega. But the writers of this were actually brilliantly pointing out how we make... Jesus, a co-pilot, a passenger on our journey through life, that we ask for stuff, and we like to see this innocent little baby. I don't think we're so comfortable with the, uh, the bigger Jesus. When Isaiah said, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, and the virgin will conceive a son, and call his name Emmanuel. In the next chapter, in chapter 8, he will pass through Judah and will overflow and pass over and reach up to the neck and stretching out of his wings and will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be shattered, O you peoples, and be broken to pieces. Wait a minute, that doesn't sound like the little baby Jesus anymore. We'll stick with Isaiah chapter 7. Let's not move on to chapter 8 because he starts to get like, you know, big boy Jesus. We'll stay with the little baby Jesus, because we can control the little baby Jesus. We can put him in his little manger and set him out once a year and pray to the little baby Jesus and like the little baby Jesus, and that's all we're going to do is talk to the little baby Jesus. We're not going to be in... Um, Ricky Bobby had an accent. In case but the issue of what Emmanuel was, what that name signified, is much, much more than God just putting on a coat of flesh and dwelling among us. Much more. In fact, a little bit more, a little further down into that passage in Isaiah. So Isaiah 8, 14. He will be as a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. A sanctuary, really. That God, in... In the beginning part of John, earlier on, he said, God put on flesh and tabernacled among us, that he dwelt among us. Emmanuel means God with us. The Advent is not just about the birth of Christ. The Advent is about the coming of the Messiah. And this represents Christ's walking into the temple and presenting himself as Messiah. Let me show you. In... Matthew one twenty three, as they quote this verse, Emmanuel, that's the end of the 
of the birth narrative. You get you get in Matthew one twenty three, and you get that's that's all there is. Just Emmanuel, God with us. The rest of the book. So okay, you've got chapter one, and then you've got chapter two of Luke, and and the entire rest of the gospel narratives are about the advent of the Son of God into the world. It's not just about the birth. The birth is the starting point for us to understand what God did in the rest of his ministry. So as he walks into the temple courts, he takes the doves and the money changers and casts all that out, and the Jews ask him, what sign do you do? Well, why would they ask that? Why would they wonder? Why would they say, why wouldn't they just say, you have no authority to do this? They don't just simply say, who do you think you are? Instead, they know who he thinks he is by the action he's performing. And I think we missed that. So I'm going to help us identify why they said that. They, they know he's doing something messianic here. How do we know that? In Daniel 8, 14... And he said to me, this is the angel speaking to Daniel, for 2,300 days, and then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. There was a period of time that was going to go from a specific event in Israel's history, after Daniel wrote this prophecy, from that specific event until the introduction of the Messiah would be, quote, 2,300 days. Some guys, some really smart guys, much smarter than me, have added that up. And it, interestingly enough, ends right around 27 AD to 30 AD, depending on when you have marked the start date. There's some discrepancy about when the start was. The Jews knew it was right around this time. They counted the days, and they were like, okay, this is the time frame. You know, we might have it off by a year or so. We're not really sure what's going to go on, but the Messiah is going to, he's going to show up because that's what the prophecy of, of Daniel was pointing to is that there's going to be a specific marker of time. And then the Messiah is going to come. And when he comes, it says, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. There's a very specific prophecy about the introduction of the Messiah. Okay? What else is there? Well, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to remember what we talked about a little bit with the wedding at Cana last week. Jesus turns water into wine. Water got turned into something else in an earlier part of Israel's history. Anybody remember what it was? Blood. In the Exodus, right? Water gets turned into blood. So in Exodus 4, God says to Moses, And then it will be if they do not believe you, nor heed the message of the first sign, that they will believe the message of the latter sign. And that if they don't believe these two signs, and listen to your voice, that you shall take the water from the river and pour it out on dry land, and the water which you take from the river, will become blood on the dry land. Well, the other sign that Moses was to show them was the sign of a rod. In Exodus 6, 7, when the Pharaoh speaks to you saying, show a miracle for yourselves, and then say to Aaron, take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh, and let it become a serpent. And you guys, if you've watched Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments, you know what happens next. The issue then is that the rod becomes a symbol that gets carried throughout the rest of the Old Testament, and it gets referred to regularly in Isaiah chapter 11, who we're picking on Isaiah a lot, right? In Isaiah chapter 11, starting in verse 1, then there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch to grow out from his roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, 
and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, and the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by the sight of eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Now, when Jesus walks into the temple with his words, he is defending the poor. With his actions, by cleansing the temple, he is specifically proclaiming himself to be the Messiah. They're not asking him who he thinks he is. They're asking him, okay, we know what statement you're making by doing this. It is unambiguous that you are claiming to be the Messiah. Now show us a sign that proves that you're able to do it. Echoing back to the Exodus. Echoing back to Moses. And they're saying, alright, if you're the new Moses, if you're the guy that's going to set all the captives free, and everything that they thought with that, freeing them from Rome, becoming an earthly king, everything that they thought that implied, they said, show us the sign so that we know you're the one. That's what they were asking for. This is the advent. You are now the coming king. If you're the Messiah and you're presenting yourself, show us, show us that you're really serious about this. It's not a question of how dare you. It's a question of will you prove to us that you're the one. There may have been even a rumor of Jesus turning water into wine and the wedding in Cana. It may be that John's actually linking the wedding of Cana to what's going on here. So, let me, uh, let me bounce back to what we read in Numbers 19 last week. We talked about the water purification and how the wedding of Cana was actually referring to an Old Testament prophecy. A very specific kind of water. Anybody remember what that, that was? Water purification. And... Uh, what was it mixed with? The ashes of the bull, right? Of, of the red heifer specifically, right? And that the high priest would do this, and that the water would become water for purification. And that water gets turned into wine. Wine, symbolically, we talked about the prophecy of Judah and the blood of grapes, right? That he would cover his garments in the blood of grapes. I'm going to read down a little bit further. After that section in, Ex or in Numbers 19 where the water of purification is described, which I'm saying is what John was pointing to in the uh, wedding in Cana, starting in verse 11. Whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean seven days. He shall cleanse himself with the water, and on the third day and on the seventh day he shall be clean. But if he does not cleanse himself on the third day and the seventh day, it will not become clean. Whoever touches a dead person, the body of anyone who has died, does not cleanse himself, then defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. Wait. So, if you touch a dead person, and you don't go wash yourself in the specific water of purification, then you're defiling the temple? Isn't the temple... Wait a minute. I read that right. Defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. Hmm. Where does the Lord dwell? Emmanuel means God with us. There's also this interesting thing that happens in here. He does not cleanse himself on the third day. 
One of these things that Jesus says in here, as he's speaking of this, he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. His response to them for a sign comes out with three days after the destruction of the temple, you'll see a sign. There's another encounter with the Pharisees where they ask him for a sign. It's in Matthew 12. And then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. What happened to Jonah? What? And then, how many days later? And Jesus says, For Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, if Jesus is pointing out the response to asking him about a sign in two different occasions is going to be a three-day event starting with his death and ending with his resurrection, starting with the destruction of the temple and ending with the rebuilding of the temple. One would expect that that's a significant event that they would catch. They miss it on the first pass because it's hidden throughout the Old Testament as a thread that runs consistently through. Let me read Numbers 19 again. Just that one little section. He shall cleanse himself with the water on the third day and on the seventh day. And if he does not cleanse himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not become clean. Whoever touches a dead person, or that's somebody who's dead, in case you didn't know, and the body of anyone who has died, that's an interesting little double entendre that some of the English translations try and simple for you. The body of a dead person who's died. Well, that just sounds redundant, so let's just simplify that and say the body of a dead person. The original language has it redundant because it's the body of a dead person and then the body of somebody who has died. Like Lazarus. But then is not dead anymore, maybe? Question? It leaves the question lingering, at least the potential of the question lingering, that there's a distinction between a dead person and someone who has died. It's an interesting potential hint towards the resurrection. But more interestingly to me in that passage, more directly interesting, is the fact that what you defiled in that is the tabernacle of the Lord. There's a connection here between what God did, what Christ did in the wedding at Canaan, turning water into wine, and what he's doing here in the cleansing of the tabernacle, cleansing of the temple. Let's keep going, because there's, there's a lot more in this section. So they ask him for a sign. We, uh, we see Exodus, and we see the signs that Moses presented in drawing Israel out of the land. And then we see that Jesus quotes a psalm here. He quotes Psalm 69. And then we see that there's a prophecy in Daniel that had to do with the cleansing of the temple. And then there's this prophecy in Numbers 19 that has to do with the cleansing of someone and death and the tabernacle. And it's all in there. And they're looking at this. And all, all these religious teachers who have studied the Old Testament are, are looking at what he's doing. And they're saying, okay, you, you're, you're claiming to be the Messiah. You're calling on all these prophecies. And they're, they're probably running through their Rolodex of scrolls in their head going, okay, all right, we see what you're doing. Now show us a sign. And his response is, kill me. I'll, I'll raise again three days later. Not what you would expect. Hmm. 
in Haggai, verse 2, or chapter 2. In the seventh month, on the 21st of the month, the word of the Lord came to Haggai, the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel. And I'll skip some of the names just to save you that. Starting in verse 3 again. Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is not your eyes, this is nothing? Yet now be strong, says the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, the high priest. And I'm skipping a couple of the names. For I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the word, when I took you out of Egypt, my spirit remains among you. And then in verse 6, For thus says the Lord, Once more is a little while I will shake heaven and earth, and I will shake all the nations, and they shall come to the desire of nations. It's an important phrase. And I will fill this temple with the glory of the Lord of hosts. So, the desire of all nations was recognized by the first century rabbis as a, as a specific name of the Messiah. And in this section of Haggai, what's being called out is that the temple of Solomon was great, but that it was torn down, and that very few people were alive that remembered its former glory. Haggai says, no, 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 there's coming a temple that is going to be greater than this because the glory will dwell among it. And when that second temple comes, when that new temple comes, it will contain the desire of all nations. And they said, that desire of all nations? The desire of all nations. Okay, that is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic prophecy. That is the fulfillment of all of the Gentiles being blessed through Israel. That is the specific title of the coming Messiah. He is called the desire of all nations. In fact... The, the song that Wes was just singing, uh, Come Now, what is it? Come Now Long Expected Come Now Long Expected Jesus. It had it in the chorus, and I was looking at it, I was reading, I was like, huh, the song preaches my sermon for me. Because if you look at the words of that song, as I was, and unfortunately I don't know the song all that well, I was just reading it along on the screen as it was uh, as we were going through it, I was like, oh, there's all kinds of prophecies in here. The, the rod of Jesse was in there, and and the desire of nations was in there, and then this this is the Emmanuel, the long-expected Jesus. That's what was happening in the first century. They were waiting for this guy. They were looking for him. This guy was the one. Now, here's the thing. We talked about this before with, with Hanukkah. The, the, the temple that existed, that Herod built, that they were talking about, took 46 years to build, was amazing. It was wonderful. It was one of those feats of ancient architecture that everybody was like, wow, Herod's temple, man, he spared no expense. The first century Jews thought that it was an abomination to the name of God because here was this guy, Herod, who was an appointed Roman official who had the squatter title of king who was not the rod of Jesse, who was not the son of David. This guy didn't have the right to be king. He was approached by these kings from Persia, who there may have been more than three of, and said, show us the one who was born king of the Jews. There's a specific insult in there because he was not born king of the Jews. And they looked at that temple and they said, no, no, no. This temple is not the one that contains the glory of God. The glory of God's going to come. And it's going to be 
the new temple. It is going to be the filling that we're looking for. The desire of nations will bring it. The desire of nations will build the temple. So this interchange that's going on between Jesus and the Pharisees is loaded with Old Testament prophecies. The twist, however, is that he says, the temple I'm talking about is not this thing made of stone. It's my body. So now we come down to this section in verse 22. In 2 Peter, verse 13, 2 Peter, uh, Peter writes, Yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent, as long as I am in this tabernacle, to stir you up and remind you that I must shortly put off my tent, just as the Lord Jesus showed me. And he's making it very clear that that means his death. The tent of the body is actually something that the ancient Greeks would, they would use the term soma sema. And what that meant was the body, the tomb. That your body contained your spirit, and, and it was holding you down, it was holding you back, it was, it was not all that it was meant to be. Your body was failing you. Your body didn't let you be free. But that one day through death, you would be set free from the tomb of the body and be released. Jesus says something that radically goes against that thought in Greek and Grecian culture. And he says that the body is going to be rebuilt. That the body is going to be made new. That this body will get torn down and a new one will get built. And it will be more glorious. So, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus said. Now, as I, as I was studying this, I thought there are a couple of different references that John may be thinking about. They believed the scriptures. We already talked about a lot of the scriptures that the Pharisees saw as clearly messianic. Then he also pulls out Psalm 69 as this quote. And Psalm 69 is wonderful as an Advent reading. If you want to go read about God coming to earth, go read Psalm 69. It, can, it contains a number of specific references about the Messiah and some specific references to the resurrection. There's also some references in Psalm 69 that certain commentators have said point to Jesus' childhood, including his difficulty with, uh, uh, with some of the local drunks who make a song out of him. Um, he's been in Psalm 69, verse 8. I've become a stranger to my mother's brothers. He's born in reproach. Shame has covered his face. There's a specific section of Psalm 69 that says, Let not the flood water overflow me, or your deep swallow me up. And let not the pit shut its mouth on me. The pit was Sheol, the Old Testament Hebrew version of Hades. Draw near to my soul and redeem it. Deliver me. And it goes on and on. And in fact, Psalm 69 is quoted again. It's referenced by the disciples as they remember Jesus hanging on the cross because he says in verse 21, They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. So I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's just amazing. Um, 
how much this song, 69, is can be mapped to Jesus' earthly ministry. I'll let you do that homework on your own. It could be that when John writes that they remembered the scriptures, he's thinking about Psalm 69, the psalm that Jesus quotes. could be. In, in fact, John later on specifically quotes the psalm. Uh, in John 15, 25, it says, This happened that the, word, uh, that the word might be fulfilled which is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. Which is a specific quotation of, a, of another section of Psalm 69. It could also be that there are other psalms that he's pointing to, and you know, this, this is interesting uh, in its conjecture. Psalm 119, uh, my zeal has consumed me because my enemies have forgotten your words. That's interesting. I was, I was looking at this in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and it actually is word for word the same in the Septuagint between Psalm 69.9 and Psalm 119. We talked about the Logos being the word of God and how that runs through the Greek translation of the Old Testament all through Psalm 119. Another fantastic study. I continue to encourage you to go read Psalm 116, 119 and see the Logos, the personification of the Word of God, and think about its implications of Christ, what it implies about the coming Messiah. So, the first thing that the author could have been, that John could have been pointing to when he says that the, that the disciples remembered the Scripture was the Psalms that were being quoted here. There's also something else. He could have been talking about those messianic prophecies that the, uh, that the Jews were hearing. There's another fantastic one in Malachi. And in fact, the one in Malachi, uh, if you've been around the church for a long time, you've heard Malachi abused by people that have tried to say, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. <laughs> but if you read Malachi, starting in verse 1, it says, The burden of the word of the Lord on Malachi I have loved you, says the Lord. In what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? And he goes on, and in, in verse 5 it says, Your eyes shall see, and the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. And then in, in verse 6 it says, The son honors his father, and the servant his master. If I am the father, where is my honor? If I am the master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts, the priests who despise my name? And we said, why have we despised your name, and you offer defiled food in my altar? In what way have we offered defiled food to you? And they said, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer a blind sacrifice, is it not evil? There, there's a section in this early part of Malachi that's dealing with the priests, and the priests not doing what is right in the name of God. That's interesting because that's what Jesus is doing when he's cleansing the temple. He's correcting the religious establishment because they were profaning the name of God and they were using the required sacrifices as a way to extract money from the people. How then is it ironic that the church so often uses Malachi as an opportunity to do exactly the same thing? <laughs> that's crazy. In fact, Malachi is still on that same topic towards the end. And by Malachi 3, he's talking very specifically, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Sound like anybody else we know from earlier in John? 
Malachi is a messianic prophecy about this kind of event, about specifically what's happening right here in the temple when Jesus says he's cleaning it out. In fact, as it goes on, Malachi even specifically refers to the temple a couple of times. I'll save you that. Malachi is a short book. I encourage you to go read it. And don't be afraid of reading it and feeling guilty about the tithes and offerings. I'm telling you up front, that's not what the book of Malachi is about. <laughs> the book of Malachi is about the advent. It's about the coming of the Messiah, the King, who's going to cleanse the temple. Oh, there, there's a ton of other references. Um, there's a bunch in Ezekiel. Um, I'll spare you that because we're getting close to being out of time. But then there's this one final thing I want to leave you with on that, on this topic of the Messiah, the King. When Daniel, oh, I'm sorry, I already gave you Daniel. When David is getting close to the end of his life, he's brought the Ark of the Covenant back into the into the city, and the tabernacle is there, but he feels bad because he's got this palace and God doesn't have a house. <laughs> Never mind the fact that Ezekiel says that uh, you're going to build a house for God. You can't build something with hands that uh, is going to be a place for God to dwell. This is the prophecy out of 2 Samuel to, to David. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, we'll set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's not Solomon because Solomon died. Okay, Solomon's temple didn't make it. It's not there anymore. It's not forever. Okay, so either God didn't mean what he said, or when he said his seed and his son, which, by the way, long after Solomon, all the prophets were talking about the seed of David as some future advent, as some future coming Messiah. Clearly, they didn't take it to mean Solomon either, so this is not just a Christian reading of it. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. Interestingly, it says, If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. And it goes on. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever. Now, the throne of God on the Ark of the Covenant inside the temple has been pointed out by a number of people. In fact, I've got a couple of books up here. There's one called The Tabernacle. Uh, there's a couple of other good studies. Beth Moore's done one. I think uh, uh, the Quantity Institute's done one. There's, there's a bunch of other places where you can find it. They talk about the temple as a physical prophetic model, even in its dimensions of a man, with the, with the Ark of the Covenant right there in the heart. The issue of seeing the temple as the Son of God himself, personified into the Son of God, is something that I think John may be pointing to. It may be that as Paul writes in Ephesians, that they were looking at more than just the physical stones. In Ephesians 2, Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens and saints and members of the household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place in the Spirit. So it's possible 
that as John's writing this, that when Christ rose from the dead, that they believed the scriptures, that they're looking at the volume of the Old Testament prophecies about the coming of the Messiah, and they're saying, we missed it if we thought that the temple was a bunch of bricks. We are now being built on the foundation of Christ as the temple of God. That's okay. Tile this together. Interesting. Jesus was uh, enacting the prophetic messianic sign. That was the first point I told you we'd make. I think we I think we covered that pretty well. There's more there if you're curious. The temple's not an earthly building, but it's the body. It's not the thing built by Solomon. And in, and as John is progressing through the book, we've talked about Jesus as the Logos. He's the reason for life. He's the light. He's the way by which we see everything, and he's the enlightenment. And we've tied both of those things to a ton of Old Testament scriptures. He's the Lamb of God, right? We've tied that together. The first time God uses the word love and so forth. John is making a case strongly here that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And he's continuing to march through that. Then we said that he's the rabbi, right? He's the teacher. He's the bridegroom. And now the temple. He is building the case for who this Son of God is. And then finally, if we're the temple and God desires to dwell inside of us, back to why the early church chose this as an Advent reading. We should trust the Son of God to cleanse this temple. To start with the greed in our heart and the desire to take and exchange our work and our effort with money and take it to somebody to turn that into a sacrifice so that we can go present the sacrifice to God and say, look, I'm off the hook. Look the other way and ignore the stuff that I did because here's some money. Uh, oh yeah, I'll, I'll change that for a pigeon to fulfill the law, but I want to buy off God. Jesus comes in and he cleanses the temple to make it a house of prayer. That points right in here, right to the heart. When the Son of God comes here to build you into his temple, it is not about your behavior before God. That's not what makes you clean. Christ makes you clean from the inside out. Now, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna close with this thought. So you're like, thank you. He's finally done. The first body of Christ was a temple that was torn down, broken in his death. The new one, built up brick by brick, with Christ as the cornerstone, is the church. Does that make sense? That analogy, everybody following that? See head nods, blank stares? Yes? Okay. We are the temple. So taken together, now I'm going to tie it back to the wedding of Cana that we just looked at. The wedding of Cana, water turns to wine, is blood. It's a powerful echo of one of the symbols of communion. Now, John brings in the second analogy. Maybe, just maybe, John's not telling two stories but one. There's a wedding at Cana with the water and the wine. And then there's this event with the temple of his body broken. Hmm. That's interesting. In fact, if his body is remembered in the book Broken Bread, in communion that we're going to share in together, shouldn't it be somewhere in the scripture, shouldn't we see an echo that maybe we should prepare our hearts 
in the cleansing of the temple and the broken body. That should, that should echo somewhere. Okay, 1 Corinthians 11, the section we normally read on communion about do this in remembrance of me, and there, there's a very specific section there. Well, after that, in verse 28, it says, but let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Cleanse the temple. Let God come here and cleanse the temple as we remember that it was broken and three days later built up. That's the bread of communion. We do this in remembrance of Him. And let us remember that we're invited into a wedding feast, that it's not one thing but two. That for those that He draws close to Him, for those that are His disciples, that He calls into fellowship with Him, He offers the best and He has saved the best for last, unlike what the rest of the world tells us. But this is one story that John's telling. Father God, thank you that you have helped us to see the depth of your love for us in the writing of Scripture and in the coming of the Messiah. That you spared no expense because your Son was the most costly of all things. And that we come to you poor and broken with nothing to be able to exchange. What, what money are we going to bring to exchange into the currency of God? Who is, going to, who is going to give us the opportunity to come into the temple with a perfect sacrifice? And yet, you do this for us. You, as the perfect high priest, have brought us in, purified us, and made us whole, and it cost you everything. Help us to reflect on that. As we're, as we're looking forward to what you're going to do in us, let us not be afraid of the tearing down of this tent, of this temporary tabernacle, of this temporary dwelling. But let us look forward to the building of the temple, of the city of God that will then let your radiance be seen by all of us. And we pray this in Jesus' name.